Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I have been reading two books recently, and I'm usually reading more than one book at a time, but these two books that I've been reading are in conversation with each other, which is really interesting. The first book is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, a great Anglican author, in which characters who are stuck in hell can at any moment get on a bus in hell and go to heaven. Once they arrive in heaven, it's kind of like a rumspringa from hell, really. But once they arrive in heaven, they're these shadowy, immaterial beings, and everything about heaven hurts because everything in heaven is so solid. It's real. These souls have become so warped and distorted, they're wispy, like cloud. So the solid things hurt. But when they're in heaven, they're not left alone. No, God sends them different celestial residents to these visiting souls, trying to get them to let go of whatever was keeping them from embracing God's love and seeing God as their highest end. So there's an overbearing mother there whose who's kind of main flaw is that she sees the relationship as, with her son as her ultimate good. There's a man with a little lizard stuck on his shoulder, and the lizard represents lust, and it's always whispering things into his ear. So all these characters have things they need to let go of in order to stay in heaven. And, of course, many of them end up deciding that hell is much more comfortable for them. The other book I've been reading at the same time is The Divine Comedy by Dante, which is a work we've been studying at our Friday study. And this great comedy begins with Dante waking up in the middle of a dark wood, not quite so sure how he got there, which is a commentary on the insidious nature of sin. And just when he seems lost, and just when he seems unable to continue his life's journey, Virgil, the pagan poet, appears to him as a guide who leads him through the circles of hell. He leads him to climb Mount Purgatory so that eventually Dante can reach paradise. What I love about the story is that Virgil doesn't come to Dante of his own accord. Rather, he's sent from the Blessed Virgin Mary. Actually, the Blessed Virgin Mary sends St. Lucy to Beatrice, who's a woman who is of great importance to Dante, and it's Beatrice who sends Virgil to Dante. Now, to some, this chain of custody by which God works in the great divorce and the divine comedy might seem unnecessary. We might ask ourselves, why doesn't God himself just appear to the souls visiting heaven in the great divorce? Why can't God just quickly equip Dante with what he needs rather than sending him this pagan poet to guide him on this lengthy journey? The answer to that question is that God often works through causes. God likes to employ his creatures to accomplish his will. Think back to your own faith journey, how you got here this morning. Maybe it was that your parents imparted a robust faith to you when you were still a child. They taught you how to pray. They taught you the importance of going to church. They taught you how to read the scriptures. Maybe you had a minister or a pastor or a priest who taught you about the faith in a way that opened your eyes to the reality of it. Maybe you picked up a book by someone like C.S. Lewis or by Dante, and their words made you realize how beautiful the Christian story is. God loves to use secondary causes, but this doesn't make God less responsible for the reason that you're here. Quite the opposite. In a world of billions and billions of people, he gave you those particular parents. In a world full of many different religions and denominations and parishes, 
He gave you that particular minister. In a world full of countless books, he led you to pick up that particular volume. It's not a zero-sum trade-off. God uses preachers. And today, we have a story from Genesis where God uses secondary causes to bring about the salvation of Egypt. And I want us to reflect on that story by asking ourselves, what are we saved for? What are we saved for? Now, according to the philosopher Aristotle, the best stories are ones that have strong reversals in them. You can think of the great tragedies like Oedipus Rex, which involve a good character to whom something bad happens and he's brought from high to low. But also as humans, we love an underdog story, don't we? We love a reversal where someone is brought from low to high. As we've read the story of Joseph over the past few weeks in the lectionary, perhaps you've noticed that it is one of not just one reversal, but of multiple reversals. It's a really well-written story. Elevated through favoritism that Jacob had for Joseph, his brothers tear him down by selling him into slavery. In slavery, Joseph flourishes and is lifted high to become the head of Potiphar, an Egyptian noble's household. But he's taken down again when Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of assaulting her and he gets thrown into prison. And after languishing in prison for years and years, he's brought before Pharaoh because the royal baker who had been in prison with him remembered that Joseph had been given the gift of being able to interpret dreams from God. And so Joseph interprets this dream that had been troubling Pharaoh. There will be seven years of prosperity in the land, followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph, gives, so Joseph gets a, a pretty dramatic reversal, a promotion. He's raised to second in command from the depths of being forgotten in prison to all of a sudden being one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt with a special job of stockpiling a surplus during the years of plenty so that the Egyptians could survive during the years of dearth. And now, in the middle of that famine, Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt in search of food, and the moment for the great reveal is here. And some of us might read that story and think, oh, the brothers are going to get it. (laughs) But that's not what happens. Because you see, Joseph has had a lot of time since the events of his betrayal. And you can imagine he probably asked the question why quite a bit during his ups and downs throughout his journey. Why did God allow all this to happen? What was the point of these reversals? No doubt Joseph has been pondering this, especially at those moments when he was in prison for years. But by this point, he has an answer. And he tells his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity unto you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. In chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph expands the scope of God's salvific event. He tells his brothers, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So there are kind of three consequences here in these reversals in the Joseph story. God used Joseph to save the Egyptians. This is no doubt God's faithfulness to the promises that he made in chapter 12 of Genesis to Abraham. That Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the whole world, even the people down in Egypt. A second consequence is that God used Joseph to save his brothers. 
For seeing the famine, he makes a way for the chosen people to be preserved. Just like he gave Noah an ark. Just like he called Abraham out of the land and protected him. So he cares for the descendants of Jacob. Third, and finally, by preserving Jacob's sons through the famine, God ensures that the line of Abraham continues. And of course, it is this line that becomes the nation of Israel after the Exodus, which is the vehicle whereby our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes to us. Maybe all these reversals, are, which are so prominent in the Joseph story, are why the early church fathers saw so many parallels between Joseph and Christ. Like Joseph, the story of Jesus is characterized by reversals. The eternal word, the Son of God, condescends, comes down to be born of a virgin, and takes on human nature. And of course, over his ministry, the crowds elevate him. They celebrate him. They follow him. But ultimately, as St. John says, his own received him not. He was betrayed. He was tortured. He was executed. But the ultimate reversal occurred. He was vindicated by his resurrection, glorified in his ascension, and now he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And just like with the story of Joseph, we might ask the question, why? Why did God become human? Why did he die on the cross for us? Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from ourselves, to liberate us from the chains of the devil, and to show us what it means to be human. St. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We could not atone for our sins, but he is the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. In the book of Hebrews, we're told, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. By his death, Christ destroys death. He's the victor over the devil. And in accomplishing these things, he shows us what human nature was always meant to be. He's the blueprint that we are to follow as we construct a temple for God in our hearts. Just like Joseph was saved not only for himself, Jesus comes not only for himself, but for us. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but those of the whole world. Their story is Christ's story, which is our story. Their story is Christ's story, which is our story. Baptism has or can initiate a great reversal in us because our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created with everything, but they chose to sin and as a result fell from paradise. Their choice has infected all of us who are their offspring with what we call original sin, a disease that we inherit that makes us run away from God and prevents us from reaching our full potential. But baptism transplants us into Christ. It turns us towards God. It enables us to live as we were meant to be. Now, of course, those of us who have been Christians for any length of time know that the reversal doesn't stop with baptism. Because the Christian life is one of constant struggling against sin. It's a feature 
right? We're always oscillating between the two. We sin, we confess. We sin, we confess. We sin again, we confess again. Hopefully, hopefully over time we begin to see progress. We sin a little less and a little less. Hopefully those sins that we do commit become a little less serious over time. But still, we're always this living, living this life of reversal. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. And what are we saved for? On the one hand, we're saved because God is our ultimate end. Salvation is worth it just for its own sake. We don't really need a whole lot of reasons why, other than that's what we were created for. On the other hand, one of the reasons we're saved is because we become the hands and feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We become tasked with spreading the gospel to the world. In other words, we're saved so that others can be saved. You can think about 2 Corinthians 5.20. St. Paul calls us ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador is sent somewhere else as a representative of their country. And when they're there, they speak with authority for that country. They represent them. Joseph was an ambassador. Joseph was the means whereby salvation from the famine was brought to Egypt. The friends who lowered their crippled friend through the roof to Jesus were ambassadors. They were the means whereby their friend was healed. The centurion who comes to Jesus on behalf of his sick and dying servant is an ambassador. And he's the means whereby his servant was healed. So we, the church, are the means whereby the world might be saved. God sends us to the world to represent him, to bring the healing message of the gospel to those who are dead in sin. Like Joseph, like Jesus, we are people for others. And so how do we do that? How do we cooperate with God to bring salvation to others? The first thing I think we do is we pray. I love that St. Paul's is a praying church, like I said. We have our prayer warrior ministry, which is made up of people committed to praying for those in our community and beyond who are in need. And if you've ever prayed for someone, you know that when our culture writes off thoughts and prayers as kind of a pointless exercise, just words, you know that that's not true of prayer. I mean, if you've prayed for someone, if you've really interceded on their behalf, you know that it is a grueling experience in which you pour yourself out to God for them. When we pray for others, we come alongside them. We bear their burdens to the throne of God. And so part of our prayer life, a good chunk of our prayer life, should emulate those friends who lowered their crippled friend through the roof. We should carry the people in our lives who aren't baptized or who aren't living in light of their baptism to God. Second, we practice a ministry of presence. Where was Jesus spending his time that really rubbed the self-righteous Pharisees the wrong way? He wasn't spending time with the upper class and the educated and the, and the nice people. He was spending time with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the undesirables, those who weren't living right. But he recognized them as image bearers, and he spent his time with them. He knew them. We might say he was loving them into being lovable. We sometimes have this mentality, like we want people to figure it all out before they come to church. But that's never how it works, never how it works. It's been said that the church is a hospital for sinners more than a museum of saints, and I think that's true. When we go out of our way to spend time with people and we really embrace them for who they are, we never know what part we might get to play in their lives. 
The third and final thing I'll say about how we bring salvation to others is through the work of evangelism. That's a word we as Anglicans don't like to use. In fact, the Church of Nice from the mid to late 20th century tells us it's impolite to talk about religion in public. This is a lie. It's a lie from hell, actually, that tricks us into being respectable people rather than holy people. St. Peter tells us that we're always to be ready to give an answer when people ask about the hope that we have. And of course, there are places where evangelism is done badly by some Christians who treat it like a multi-level marketing scheme or who use coarse language to shock, scare, or manipulate people into faith. These are not good. These never actually work. They might get temporary results, but they're, they're not lasting. But real evangelism is relational. People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And so this requires a good deal of wisdom, figuring out how this works in our relationship with other people. But we, at, at the heart of it, believe that the gospel itself has power. That when we proclaim Christ crucified for the remission of sins, that this has power. That this can be the way the Holy Spirit works through us to plant a flag in the rebel soul. By God's grace, Joseph saved Egypt. By God's grace, the friends lowered their, friends, their friend through the roof and he was healed. By God's grace, the centurion came to Jesus and his servant was saved from death. By God's grace, we have been saved. And through that same power that breathes spiritual life into us, we are made participants in the mission of God to redeem this world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.